Welcome to Terror Talk, a horror film and true crime psychology podcast. We podcast from Los Angeles, California, and we upload new episodes every Wednesday. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I am joined each week by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Hey, Kathy, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Welcome, everyone, to the second season of Terror Talk. Yay! Yay! I should have recorded some applause, but that would have been really lame. <laughs> um, anyway, so today on the show, we are going to talk about Amanda Knox. Specifically, the Netflix documentary will be a piece of it, but mostly we're going to talk about the behavioral uh, situation that we witness in Amanda Knox and break it down. So the first thing I would like to do is just play, it's going to be really short, guys. It's um, the way the Netflix documentary opens for Amanda Knox, I thought was an interesting choice. So here it is. I think it's going to come. There are those who believe in my innocence, and there are those who believe in my guilt. There's no in-between. And if I'm guilty, it means that I am the ultimate figure to fear because I'm not the obvious one. But on the other hand, if I'm innocent, it means that everyone's vulnerable. And that's everyone's nightmare. Either I'm a psychopath in sheep's clothing or I am you. Yeah. So that's that's a thought. I wonder if that was something. I, I obviously that's something that she's felt all along. But mm-hmm. so the Netflix documentary is simply called Amanda Knox. It's from 2016. Um, I recommend it. It's an interesting breakdown of the case, and she's involved. It's so a, it's, I think they did a really good job. I've, this is the second time I've watched it, mm-hmm. um, and Me too. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. I would also recommend there's a BBC documentary that's only about an hour long. That's widely available on YouTube. Um, If you want the facts of the case in a chronological order, sort of if you're trying to sort of orient yourself to how it happened, what happened, and the minutia of how it went along, that was really good. We're not going to do that today. We are not lawyers nor criminal investigators. So if you want all of the specifics, Great. Go and I would say go and watch that today. What we're gonna we're gonna stay in our wheelhouse and talk psychology. Um, so Amanda Knox. Uh, so for those of you who may not know, let's orient. Uh, one of the most widely publicized cases of our time actually is Amanda Knox. Uh, November second, two thousand and seven. She was she's from Seattle, but she was living in Italy, and her roommate was murdered. Uh, happened to be British roommate, um, Meredith Kircher was murdered. And Amanda served four years in prison. And then she was uh, released. She was acquitted and released. And then she was retried in absentia. And then she was convicted again, only to be exonerated by the Italian Supreme Court, which handed down its final opinion in September 2015. So she spent uh, eight years or seven years about uh, it's a you know an eight year duration basically of the case uh, worldwide obviously and a significant chunk of her life at that time because she was right. really young yeah she was twenty I believe yeah twenty when this all started forgive me if it was nineteen but nineteen or twenty somewhere in there and so then twenty to twenty eight yeah those are we're gonna get into her developmental stage but. So that's where we're at. I'm wondering, as far as the Netflix documentary, there are things about the Netflix documentary that we learned from watching it. So let's let's kind of start there. There were some new things, in other words, that we learned from the from the show. So the first thing I would mention would, I mean, let's just get right into this Italian prosecutor that she had. Um, one of the first things we, we learned that's different in the Netflix documentary is that there was the, the basically the moment when he decided to 
go down a road where he was going to um, prosecute her. And I guess it's uh, 45 days after or something like that, during the investigation, they brought Amanda to the ha- back to the house or something like that. And it, she had a basically a panic attack. She They were asking her to see if any of the, oh, it was her boyfriend's apartment, my apologies. They took her to her um, boyfriend's apartment and the police asked her to go through the knives in case one of them might be the murder weapon. And Knox apparently began to panic and slap herself around the ears. And I I don't know, Kathy, it sounds like a panic attack to me. She freaked out. Um, And that's when apparently the Italian prosecutor decided that he first suspected her of the murder. So, yeah, let's look at contextually. You have a 19-year-old or 20-year-old young woman in a foreign country. She will get into this, but she had only been there for a few weeks Mm -hmm. um, and had only known her roommate for five weeks. So all of this is just, I would imagine there's a complete shock, right? Mm -hmm. And then she's been there for such a short amount of time and the next thing you know she's caught up and now potentially a suspect of a murder so yeah I would imagine there's some panic yeah and you know I I don't so I haven't read Amanda's uh, memoir nor have I read her boyfriend's memoir of the experience that they have had but I but I'm assuming that there were moments in time that were triggers to to realize reality um, to realize what she was going through. And I, I would imagine that being taken to her boyfriend, mind you, boyfriend of five days, mm-hmm. they had been together for five days. That's another thing that we learn in the Netflix documentary that they really punch up. Uh, and so she's in her boyfriend's apartment. A minute ago, she was blissful. And, you know, and a month later, she's in there uh, being asked to identify murder weapons I mean, I would think it was pretty surreal for her. And there were moments where she realized that. Absolutely. And think about, there have been a lot of, um, there were a lot of comments made about her affect when, mm-hmm. when the morning that they found her roommate's body, there's a lot of talk about, you know, she was cuddling up with her boyfriend and she was doing this and this. Okay, because she didn't think she was going to be a suspect. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and she had no attachment to this girl. No, she so, didn't. but there was so much expectation. I don't. And we'll get into this when we talk today. But how much gender plays a part in what was expected of her and her mm-hmm. reactions when they say, you know, they they weren't appropriate to well, which gender? Well, and so that that also brings up the fact that um, you know we're we're in Italy, and so we have to bring the. I mean, I think culture played an extremely big part Huge. of this. So the prosecutor also, um, he was a very religious man, a devout path, mm-hmm. uh, Catholic, uh, believed in good and evil and guilt and judge, God's judgment and all of that. So her behavior, you know, to be being comforted outside with her, you know, boyfriend of five days, but they were absolutely falling in love for, from all the things that I've read. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was an instant connection and she, it was the first, it was the first time she'd ever fell in, fallen in love. Both, they've both said that publicly. So you can imagine what kind of, you know, brain chemicals were going on there and he's comforting her. Her roommate has been slaughtered and she's probably thinking things like it could have been me. And he's, he's comforting, comforting her outside. And this prosecutor was highly judgmental of her behavior with men and, and, and read a lot of detective stories, by the way. <laughs> well, and I, I also want to point out that he was um, convicted in a, in a case, uh, the Monsters of Florence case, um, mm-hmm. and he, that he was charged with abuse of office mm-hmm. and wiretapping. So this is, I, I, my personal assessment is, of this guy is complete spiritual narcissist. Like mm-hmm. he, he uses so much of his, uh, belief system to justify his behavior. Um, a quote that he said, as the case gets further and he's convinced that she's this, you know, uh, I don't know, Lolita, whatever. Mm-hmm. He says, um, 
you know, they all congratulated me after sending an order um, to, you know, ordering the, uh, sorry, I'm losing my words. They ordered um, a review of the DNA on the knife. Yeah. And he spoke so highly of himself through this. Like it was really, he just wanted to be right. He wanted to say that he was the one who found the killer and he decided that she was guilty well before there was anything I mean, there wasn't anything in the end. There was so that. much pressure. I mean, I, 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 I see him as, you know, his uh, fantasies about what it is were clouding this. His core beliefs were clouding this. Uh, he, I hear what you're saying about the spiritual narcissism and and wanting to be right and all that. I mean, I think it takes a certain amount of narcissism. You know, hopefully healthy narcissism to be a prosecutor. You have mm-hmm. to really, I mean, to do any of our jobs, really, you have to have a certain amount of healthy narcissism to think that you can, mm-hmm. you know, execute justice and, mm-hmm. and all of that. It's just that his, the, you know, I don't know. Did you read, this is an interesting piece to drop here, is that um, I don't know what the case was, but I also was told that earlier in the year, his department or the Italian police had really bungled very publicly some other case. Mm. And so they were coming into it like that too. Mm -hmm. Like, Oh, this is so high profile. We can't screw this up again. And so, and I think we see this over and over again in um, false convictions Mm -hmm. where they get caught up in what, in perception and what they Mm -hmm. really need to accomplish. And they get a lot, a lot of political pressure Mm -hmm. to figure out, like get someone in jail, whether it's the right person or not. Right. And we also have to look at, she was American, she was a female and in his mind, secular. So all of these, these three things going against his entire, uh, well, uh, being American doesn't go against his belief system, but it certainly didn't help. Um, Mm -hmm. And he mentioned many times that he was, you know, he was from this small town and he wasn't going to allow this American to come in. And so there, it was so emotion, highly emotionally driven Mm-hmm. and spiritually driven, which tells you, this is a high-profile case, we like to think that there's a science behind this, which there is. I mean, it's, you know, law and, and detective, you know, there is there is a method, but how people are still human mm-hmm. and their emotions, and the reason why I think his went beyond healthy narcissism is because he's already proven these fucked up in other cases and allowed his ego to do things that were completely illegal and intrusive. And he continued to do that in this case too. Yeah. I mean, the police bungled the whole thing. There's a whole conversation we could have, which we're probably not going to have because I don't want to get into the legal pieces of this, but there's a lot of, a lot written um, in highly regarded sort of research journals about how the legal system, uh, the Italian legal system was bungled in this. And oh, that's so much contamination. Yeah. One of the reasons why the, it was overturned. Um, mm-hmm. Another thing I thought was interesting that I did not know before the Netflix special is that one of the cons that they ran on Amanda, um, which, you know, people do to get confessions, et cetera, was um, while Knox was in prison, the police wanted to get a list of the people who she'd had sex with. Mm -hmm. And so they told her that she had HIV Mm -hmm. so that they, that so that she would give them a list of her sexual partners, which I thought was interesting and very, as a woman, I'm imagining, it was the way that they could talk about sex with a woman. I don't know if there was a gent, you know, it just, and it, and it was something, uh, it was enough to scare her mm-hmm. uh, for her to have to be honest because she would want to know. Right. No, it's a, I mean, if you think about it from a manipulative tactic uh, as a con, it's, it's perfection. It's, right. it's, of course she's going to tell them. And so she did. Um, I mean, they, they, they were actually doing it because they would hope they were hoping that it would lead them to more witnesses or suspects because their theory was that she was sex crazed and sleeping with a bunch of people and that multiple people were involved in this murder. And the thing that they were trying to sell, the story they were trying, the narrative they were trying to sell was that she masterminded this and she's a black widow and she got them all to kill her. The, yeah, absolutely. And this prosecutor presents her like Eve from the Garden of Eden. I mm-hmm. mean, she devil with an angel face, deviant, witch of deception. Even the way she, he spoke about her, um, he had this idea of what a woman should be and what she was. And she was a temptress and she was this and what constitutes deviant sex. Right. 
right? And he he defined that for the case. Yeah, and and that was that was what he was trying to convince everyone of, and and it worked mm-hmm. <laughs> basically until it didn't. But it took up a lot of people's time and money and, and an innocent person's uh, situation over eight years to figure out what the truth was. The The last thing I would say about the Netflix documentary that was interesting was that we always sort of, you know, if you'd followed the case, you just sort of saw how the media played it out. And, and we can all think of all kinds of cases where this has happened, you know, OJ central park five, which we did an episode on, you know, like all the different things where we're watching along in the media because we're fascinated by this, by this happening. But it really, there's a guy named Nick Pisa who they interview, who is a daily mail reporter at the time. And the quote uh, that I was most taken aback by and was sort of, talking to the screen as we do <laughs> um, was he said uh, it's not it's not as if I can say right hold on a minute I just want to double check this fact uh, I mean goodness knows how I would even do that and then I'd let my rival in there get the story first before me and then hey I've lost a scoop that was his answer to a question about did you check out this fact or that fact that they were talking about in the interview and his answer was well, I'm not going to stop down and double check a fact when I'm going to get scooped. Right. Uh, I was like, uh, but <laughs> so loaded but though. It, it's so loaded. It's like, yeah. oh, okay. And although the we as audience members are greedy for the information on a day to day basis of a big case like this, uh, yeah, I would like you to actually stop and double check a fact. But he, I, I understand his point is that someone else will just report it without double checking it. But then it's about who, who, what kind of reporter do you want to be? But, you know, hey, anyway, right? I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> was there anything else you wanted to talk about with the Netflix documentary? Um, no, I, I think it's worth watching if people haven't seen it. It's been out for a while now, so I'm sure many people who are interested in the case have probably seen it by now. Yeah, that's why we went, didn't get real detailed um, with it. But but I think it's... I think it w- it was well done. Yeah, and I would say watch the BBC if you want the facts, if you're not that familiar, because there's a lot of facts and there was a lot of chronology to this over eight years. And then um, maybe read maybe read her memoir and Raphael's uh, memoir that they have both written books about what they went through because her character all it, whoa, I cannot speak today. Um, her character is really represented in her memoir Mm -hmm. you you really get a sense of who she is so then one thing I thought maybe we could do is I think Kathy and I and I and I honestly I think most retrospectives agree and most scholars agree that she was convicted on her behavior 100% this was very um, behaviorally driven there was no evidence presented and why she ended up not being convicted in the very end yeah and so what I wanted to do is just give um There's probably more, but three categories of her behavior that were obviously contributed to the fact that she was vilified in the media and also prosecuted. Um, So the first would be her naivete. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She did a lot of things that were quite naive at the time. Um, uh, I don't know. What would be an example of that? Let me think. Well, just to couple that with her admittance to feeling like in Italy she became this focus. She Mm -hmm. was finally noticed. And she was invisible in Mm -hmm. America. So when you are that young and have less impulse control or insight or awareness or all those things that we need to make proper judgment – you're not really going to protect yourself all that much. You're right. really in the middle of, God, this feels good. Mm-hmm. So the definition of naive is having native or unaffected simplicity, ingenious or artless, uh, naive mannerisms, untaught, especially in philosophical or scientific constructs, not philosophical, not sophisticated. So, you know, if you've done if you've seen Amanda Knox at all, she definitely lives up to that. Uh, there was an article in um, 
there is a guy who writes for the LA Review of Books and he reviewed her memoir and he said that, you know, Knox didn't call the police when she got home from Salacitos uh, because she was naive. She was incapable of imagining a violent crime being part of her life. Like, if you know the facts of the case, what happens is she comes home uh, the next morning after having been out with her boyfriend, she comes home and she the door's open. She's like, okay, whatever. She walks in. She, you know, has something to eat maybe. I don't know. She goes in the bathroom. She sees some drops of blood like on the floor, but like literally drops and thinks, oh, well, she th- she whatever. She thought uh, like, her roommate had cut herself shaving. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't it so... So not so again naive, not thinking that she could possibly be there could be a dead person in the next room. She takes a shower. Well, let's stop there for a second. Yeah, who the hell would think that? Ex- yeah, I don't know. Nobody. I mean, unless you're seriously paranoid and probably need help, if right. that's your first go-to thought. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty normal reaction to. I do too. Not assume she has a dead body in the next room. Well, and she was so so then she. Gets in, she takes a shower. So you can imagine later how that seems like the thoughts of a psychopath. Like that she mm-hmm. murdered her roommate the night before, left her in her bedroom, and now she's back home after having sex with her boyfriend and taking a shower. Because that opinion is coming from the bias that she knew what had happened. Exactly. But if you think of her as innocent, she was incapable of imagining a violent crime would be a part of her life. Of course. And, and I would have been too, especially at 20. I might be more suspicious now if Growing I saw up blood in a on the Seattle, floor. Seattle suburb. Yeah, exactly. And she got out of the shower and then saw some more blood and thought, huh, and then thought about it for a second and then went to her roommate's room and the door was locked. And she's like knocking and such and such. So she, I think she calls her boyfriend or something. He comes over. They can't get in the door. And then they call the cops. Because mm-hmm. they're like, what if something's happened to her or she's stuck in there or something? I think it, at some point, too, she does notice that there's more blood. Yeah, the and, more blood. And then she starts to think like, you know, maybe something's going on with her mm-hmm. roommate's period. And then she notices that the feces in the toilet isn't flushed. Right. So things... Once she starts to get a little bit more, she does then react. She thinks, I am sure she did not think that the someone that her murder that her roommate was murdered. I imagine she thought so, she's sick or something's wrong. Right. I, I just I need help, and then it's actually her boyfriend that calls the police. Um, and my understanding is, I think he's the one that decided to call the police, and so. Ah, but you know, her naivete is over and over and over again. And in the second part of our show today, we're actually going to talk about a lot more into her naivete, but you know, she just didn't really believe that the police's objective was to, to discover the truth. Like she thought that's what they wanted. And the, and she, so she just acted like herself. She just told mm-hmm. the truth, acted like herself, her and thought and thought that her innocence would just be obvious to everyone. Like I wasn't even there. Exactly. And well, I know we'll talk about this in the next part, so I'll Mm -hmm. save it. But um, the way they interpreted her reaction and making a, um, again, like a a conviction or Mm -hmm. not a conviction, but making an assumption based on her reaction. Um, And I did an expert witness case on this a couple of years ago uh, about a murder trial that had been reopened for this reason was the reason why the woman was originally convicted was because when she called 911, they believed that her affect did not match someone who would be uh, who would be innocent and my testimony was around. There's no standardization. There's no normative response to trauma. This is that is so much a part of this case because and 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 there's going to we're going to talk more about this, but it, it also it speaks to grief. She was convicted because she didn't grieve correctly. And they the, and there's so much in the writing about this and in the media projection of this about how she was supposed to be grieving in a particular way for a girl she'd known five weeks. Right. And she, and she had, and she, I don't even think she really spent time with this girl. She lived with her. No, I mean, my, my thought, exactly. My thought is that, and they did, they partied together. They spoke pot together. They, they were drank together. Five weeks though. 
Yeah. I mean, I spent a I spent a semester abroad when I mm-hmm. was 21. I know what that is. Right. Like I know exactly what that five feels weeks. Like. You're barely getting to know that five person. weeks. You're having a great time and you're in this thing together. And so it does bond you quickly. But five weeks, I'm not going to. You're not going to lose your mind. I'm not going to lose my mind. I'm going to be really upset because I'm going to be scared that the person's going to come back and get me. That's what I'm going to be scared of. Sure. Right. Um, But there were lots of articles read that, you know, you can, if you really want to go down a rabbit hole with this, you know, the New York Times Review of Books did something on this, on her book. Uh, Rolling Stone has interviewed her. And the kind of quotes that you get are things like, Describing her having a childlike innocence, you know, ever credulous, a guileless, almost to the point of aberrance, uh, callowness. Um, so that was just her vibe. And the, there's also there the some of the other things I read too were sort of about the fact that she didn't have her personality structure was not um, highly inhibited. Mm-hmm. She was not an inhibited person. Right. She wasn't the kind of person that I was at that age, which was very kind of controlled because I don't want to embarrass myself or mm-hmm. be seen as awkward or ridiculous physically. Mm-hmm. Um, so she just didn't have that. Well, so. I think she was also s- super focused on this new relationship that yes. felt really good. Uh, yeah. I mean, as soon as they said they met five days ago, and they were falling in love. Inseparable. And it's the first time they'd ever fallen in love. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember that. I know what that feels like. That is all. I, I w- the, the amount of dopamine in my brain, mm-hmm. I would not be. Yeah, I would have been. I would have been convicted too, personally. And let's not forget just shock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how that can make somebody appear indifferent. Absolutely. And, and I think back to your point before is that. We all grieve differently. We all experience trauma differently. And that will always be the testimony of anybody in psychology because there is no black, as we hammer home all the time, there's no black and white to that. There just isn't. So the second piece, uh, as far as explanations for her behavior, and um, the second thing would be her developmental stage. So I think... I think the society at large, those who don't study psychology or aren't interested into it, in it, believe adolescence to the age of, you know, 18 and then adulthood. And what's happened in the last many years is that psychologists have um, discovered a new developmental stage and that is called emerging adulthood. And so, because what happened is in neurosciences, we figured out that the brain doesn't really form finish functioning until around 25. And again, there's no black and white. So that could be 27 for one person and 24 for another. And, but that there's this other developmental stage that we were missing because the brain hasn't even fully grown into what it's going to be for the rest of your life until your mid twenties. And so well, and the last part that forms is mm-hmm. the inhibition there you and go. the judgment and the risk taking and being able to make, you know, good judgment calls. That's the very, that's why you can't rent a car until you're 25. That's right. (laughs) And I imagine a lot of people don't know that. (laughs) And they look at a 23 year old and think that they should have a job and a relationship and get married and all of that. And many people do those things in that, in that period Mm -hmm. of time. And that would not be my recommendation. (laughs) FYI, Uh, don't make a ton of big decisions, you know, go to college, et cetera. But that's just my bias. Um, So, the thing about this, so so here's the the other thing I want to mention about emerging adulthood is there's generally um, five qualities that we could state. So intense identity exploration is number one. Uh, instability is number two, meaning not really knowing your own mind. You're sort of all over the place. You make bad decisions because you're, just as Kathy was saying, your inhibitions are still... <laughs> working their way into focus. Um, the third would be a focus on self. It's a, it's a pretty selfish time. Um, but that's because you're in intense identity exploration. You see how they go together. And then four would be the feelings of being in between. And you hear a lot of that from, um, people in that, in that time period is you hear a lot of like, I'm not a kid, 
but I'm also not an adult mm-hmm. and I'm being treated as an adult, but I'm not really an adult yet. I don't feel like an adult. You know, you get that in-between feeling. And then the last one would be like a sense of possibilities. And I definitely remember about that time period oh of my like gosh. my whole life's ahead of me. I can Sky's do whatever I want. Sky's the limit. And you can dream and fantasize and, and think you can be a rock star and think you can be, yeah, you know, limitless. whatever. Yeah. Life feels limitless. And those are all appropriate (laughs) is what I think we should really hammer home. Those are appropriate for that time of life. And um, I think for I think for Amanda, the two things that would be most notable in those would be the intense intense identity exploration and the focus on self. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have. It's a very uh, egocentric time for a reason. Mm -hmm. Um, And that piece was held against her without anybody really explaining yeah. how relevant it is to where she is in her life. That is a normal response mm-hmm. to be selfish at that age. Yes. And, and to make everything about you. Yeah, it's that old Bette Miller thing of like, enough about me. What do you think of me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's that it's that idea. And um, that's that's what we get from teenagers and young adults. And it is all about you and it should be and lots of people think that's selfish and the youth are you know myopic and involved with themselves and that's true and as they should be as part of normal development so that's another piece of it and then the other piece of behavior that really got her into trouble was uh, the false confessions mm-hmm. you want to talk a little bit about false confessions I know we've talked about it before but not in this context um, well, yeah, she was forced into admitting things that never happened. Right. Um, and they kept her there. <laughs> yeah. And they let her sweat it out and they let her get tired and exhausted and upset. I think at one point her mother comes, right? Mm. To the um so there's then the emotional she just wants to go home. I know. So She's just such a kid. Just like we talked about in Central Park Five, is there's this level they they know that these these guys are going to hit a level of desperation, Mm -hmm. but then also delirium. Yeah. So she talks about the confusion that happens with what's his name. I want to call him Salsalito. (laughs) The prosecutor. No, no, no. The the, Raphael, the boyfriend. No, the, the the third guy. (laughs) I don't know who you're talking about. The guy who actually gets convicted. Oh, okay. Um, Rudy. Oh, maybe. I don't know. It's Rudy. Okay. It's Rudy. But they, (laughs) <laughs> she talks specifically about how when she reflects back to um, where she was the night before, mm-hmm. there's a lot of contamination error yeah. in the investigation. And so they get her to say things that never happened. Absolutely. So I, I confuse mean, her on purpose. A- absolutely. Yeah. They're doing it. Absolutely. They're doing it on purpose because they want to come, they want to get her guilty and get her confessing. And, and we appreciate those tactics uh, when people are guilty because we want to see people who have done horrible things behind bars. So I get the other side of it too. Um, I'll mention here that, you know, in 1987, the Stanford law review did a very, um, like a landmark study that uh, some people might be aware of about false confessions. And what they did is that they, they did, um, they did, um, I guess a literature review of cases. And so out of 350 miscarriages of justice, they found that 49 were at least partially due to false confessions. So those are the kinds of statistics we're looking at. And then we could also say there's they, in this particular study, they broke down three different kinds of false confessions. And so we could talk about this a little bit in reference to what Amanda was put through. One would be a voluntary false confession. Two would be a coerced compliant uh, confession. And third would be a coerced internalized confession. And so the uh, voluntary false confession, just to be clear, occurs when a, you know a suspect makes a false confession um, that's unsolicited, sometimes arising from mental illness or morbid guilt. So that's not what we're talking about really here with Amanda. Mm-hmm. Um, the second type would be coerced compliant confession, which manifests itself like when a suspect, um, you know, what you're discuss- what you're talking about is like the torment of the interrogation. They can't really take it any longer um, and they break, right? And they admit to a crime or like what we saw in the Central Park Five, they 
they admit to something they didn't do because they just want it to be over. And then the coerced internalized type would be the suspect becoming disoriented during the interrogation and end up doubting their own memory and accepting a false story as true. Like, and I think that's what happened to her. Exactly. Yeah. I, think, I think the last two types were partly what was going on. I mean, she has... You know, if you watch her interviews or whatever, she talks a lot about, you know, how the pressure was getting greater and greater and she was being yelled at and relentlessly and um, she was really overwhelmed and suffocated and she talks about all that. So that... Imagine, I mean, this is a kid who identifies as a late bloomer, Yeah, grows up, growing up in a Seattle suburb, looks at Italy as this really like sort of exotic, extravagant experience mm-hmm. as a young adult to go find herself and she ends up in interrogation contamination terrible (laughs) wrongfully accused i believe anyway that's my personal opinion is that she is not guilty well and that's the opinion of this netflix special and the opinion of the italian court yeah and we're not going to get into the legality of Mm -hmm. it but there's no motive right they're (laughs) they're really that's why they try to create this whole story about like a sex jealousy ring or something she was some like uh, like, dominatrix yeah uh uh-huh yeah yeah yeah. she really looks like it this girl is doing cartwheels in the in the police department department because she's you know a little bit out to lunch in that way um but the and then the coerced internalized confession like what you were saying um you know, she said, you know, nothing had substance. I, I believed the police's version of reality. I felt confused and frantic and I didn't feel like I could get out of there. And I couldn't, I got to a point where I couldn't distinguish real, real from, from not real. Mm-hmm. And the developmental stage, like what we were just talking about, the, the, you know, these studies show that young people are overrepresented in false confessions. Mm-hmm. So the research bears it out where young people are more susceptible to confessing or, or, you know, what, what Amanda did, which was she, um, she pointed the finger at people who weren't involved. Right. I mean, kids or youth are easily persuaded. They're malleable. They will believe certain things. They don't have the experience. They don't have the foresight. Mm-hmm. Um, I was sharing with Shannon before we started recording today that I was able to see her speak at a conference a couple of years ago while we're on the developmental piece. And just how a few years she, well, this experience grew her up, but just a few years she's looked older. She presented as older. Um, people could argue and say, well, she was coach. Well, I don't believe that this was, this was, these were, she didn't know what questions were going to be asked. We mm-hmm. were all able to ask her questions. Right. Um, and she, be, she, and I know, you know, um, evaluation is only good as 50% clinical evaluation. So it's like, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that because I do this work, I can say, oh, she's, well, it's she's not cause innocent. and effect, right? It's mm-hmm. not cause and effect. So, but I will say that the person I saw, and maybe it's because I've already decided in my mind that she isn't guilty. Yeah, there's a bias. She right? was very believable okay. in her presentation. So I didn't see, I don't see, I see where they get this from, but I, I also see it's very contrived and it's really like grasping at straws. Yeah, I think what happened in the media got out of hand and what happened with them really needing to prosecute. And also when she was acquitted the riots on the streets oh in Italy were insane. They they were up there with when OJ got um, acquitted, mm-hmm. where people lost their minds mm-hmm. and they were either losing their mind. And with OJ, they were either losing their minds because they were so happy mm-hmm. or they were losing their minds because a lot of people felt he was guilty. And that was the same with Amanda, except for it seemed when they show it in documentaries and things, it just seems like all of Italy wanted to vilify it, it Amanda. Does. It looks like yeah. something from like the, you know, the 1800s mm-hmm. when they, they're outside with Lynching the, the witch. Yeah. yeah. yeah and that's sure. what this whole case, it was like a witch hunt. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break and we're going to come back uh, right after this break and talk more about this and I have a little list of what not to do when your roommate is murdered in Italy. A little hindsight advice for Amanda. (laughs) 
Kathy and I can be reached on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you like email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. We appreciate you so much. We upload new episodes every Wednesday. Keep coming back. But first, stick around for more of our show. Hey there, we're back. So uh, here's what happened. (laughs) I found this really uh, fantastic article, research article from, uh, her name is Martha Grace Duncan. It's from Harvard, the, oh gosh, what's it called? The school, Harvard Journal of Law and Gender creative content. And the reason why this article is considered creative content is there's, uh, she tells a couple of personal stories and I believe she's also a met, met Amanda. And so there's some in and out of there, but there's also, uh, it's, it's highly, uh, intellectual, I guess you'd say it's academic because it's in a, in a journal. And part of this article I thought was interesting because the beginning of it, (laughs) It starts with a list, which I teased a little bit before the break, which is the first section is called What Not to Do When Your Roommate is Murdered in Italy, Advice for Amanda with the Benefit of Hindsight. And what it really does is it lays out 23 things that the author would tell Amanda not to do uh, to save herself from being put in an Italian prison in hindsight. So the first is do not carry a vibrator pink and bunny shaped inside a see-through toiletry bag in Italy. So the reason why that is, is because it was an innocent parting gift from a friend and sort of intended as a joke uh, and, you know, tossing it. It it would be great if she would have tossed it, you know, in the trash before she got Because, of course, this was one of those things that, um, you know, the vibrator will make your British roommate uncomfortable, apparently. And it's in the shared bathroom, apparently. And so this becomes a story of Meredith, who's our victim, Meredith's discomfort. Um, You know, a friend of her testifies that Meredith was bothered by Amanda's overt sexuality with the pink vibrator being there. Um, the testimony enables the prosecution to say there was, you know, an antipathy between you and you and the victim and, and all of this. And so, you know, it, it was a piece of the Amanda is sex obsessed, basically. Yeah, in that the was criminal. the theme. That was one of the running themes. Right. And so um, number two would be do not adopt the moniker of Foxy Noxie as your profile name on MySpace. I think she got that name in high school for a sport, right? She did. She did. Um, She was on a soccer team and they all had nicknames and then they put their nicknames on their workout jerseys. And so hers was Foxy Noxie, but she also made it her moniker on MySpace. And I think that's how the prosecution found it. Uh, or, you know, the the reporters, I think, probably found it first. Um, and then they will now. And so if we were to tell Amanda in hindsight, or this author would tell Amanda in hindsight not to do that, because guess what? The Italian reporters are now going to call you, I'm terrible at Italian, but it's Volpe Cattiva, which is Wicked Fox. And so <laughs> that's where she got that name. Oh, golly. So number three is... Do not embark on a campaign to have casual sex when you arrive in Italy, notwithstanding your friend's pressure to do so. So not only will you contract oral herpes um, from your first essay into meaningless intimacy, she ends up sleeping with some people, kids, so that's part of the story. But also you will enable the prosecutor to portray you as a femme fatale, (laughs) even at times a whore, right? It was the Madonna whore is sort of what they... Yeah. And this, the HIV... Um, threat would not have been a threat if she hadn't slept with a bunch of people um, because she wouldn't have been afraid of that. You know, I believe young women can sleep with whoever they want if they're safe. We both believe that, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's that's what happened. So number four, um, and I'll, I'll be interested to see what you think. When texting your boss, Patrick, on the evening of the murder, do not write, uh, see you later. I won't say the Italian version. See you later when you mean goodbye. Because that was a big part 
of their mm-hmm. of their case, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because what happened was, is Patrick, her boss at work, texted her saying, we don't need you tonight, the, the night of the murder. We don't need you to work tonight. And she wrote back in Italian, not her native language, by the way. In Italian, she said, see you later. When what she really meant was, okay, cool, thanks, or whatever, okay, goodbye, but see you later. And then there was this whole interrogation part, this whole piece of it, which was, you know, you said see you later, so then you were going to see Patrick later, and you and Patrick and your boyfriend all had a sex ring, and you killed your roommate. Right, and see you later was probably at work on another day. Yeah, just see you later. That's very American. We, we, see you we, later. We say that all the time. See, that's where these cultural these these cultural pieces come in. Again, not her native language, but right. also a cultural piece. We say see you later all the time. Mm-hmm. So she probably learned see you later in Italian mm-hmm. and said it and texted it. Or just misquote. Maybe she meant something and it trans. Yeah. I mean, in many languages, just a word off can change the whole context. Oh my gosh. It, it does in our language or, or she's a psychopathic killer and they had a sex ring and right. that's, killed her that's roommate. more likely the case. Yeah. That sounds really more likely. So number five is do not kiss your boyfriend right outside the villa where Meredith's dead body lies or sit on your boyfriend's lap in the police station, cuddling and making faces. <laughs> I, I think this is good advice. <laughs> it is good advice, but again, it doesn't speak to her guilt. It speaks to her naivete and her being a dumb kid yeah like a bit of a ditz in a way right yeah. because and, uh, and she was kind of weird yeah she was kind of weird she self-admittedly said Eccentric. it said that she had very little inhibition and, and was always a weird kid and well there it is it just bears it out because that's weird you know when you sit at Raphael's lap making faces in the police station your behavior will be remembered and right. recounted at trial and I you know I don't know what I would do in that situation and I don't know what I would have done when I was 20 with a boy and all of that I have no idea it's totally revisionistic history but god I really hope I wouldn't have been like making out with my boyfriend <laughs> in the police station but anyway it's number six when Meredith's friend Sophie sinking constantly gives you a hug in the police station do not turn away without reciprocating (laughs) because she was too exhausted to make the effort but in court sophie testifies that she was rebuffed and she describes you as cold so there Mm. number seven when meredith's friend natalie expresses the hope that meredith had not suffered do not respond how could she have suffered she got her fucking throat slit that was the response, Amanda's response, when Natalie texted her that she probably hadn't suffered. And then, and you know what? That kind of response, too, there's anger in that. Yep. Um, and anger could be because she felt injustice for her roommate. Yeah, she describes it as righteous fury at Meredith's killer. So yeah. she was angry. I mean, wouldn't you be? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I know someone five years or five weeks, I'm going to be very angry. Well, let's be real. That's a really stupid comment. It I is. hope she didn't suffer. What the fuck do you think happened in there? Yeah. A bloodbath ensued. Yeah. And man, Amanda's like, how could she not have suffered her fucking throat was slit? Right. Like, to it's me, a total that's like, appropriate and young adult. That's like, dude, that's, that's the way we talk, right? Like, yeah. dude, like, what are you talking about? Of course she suffered. She was brutalized. Right. I mean, if you, you know, get into this story, she was brutalized. Of course she it, suffered. It, it, so, yeah. She was probably pissed off at the comment. Yeah, I think so. But, you know, no, that was characterized as <laughs> her being a jerk or crude or unempathetic or whatever, mm-hmm. which I see it the opposite way. Number eight, do not stay in Perugia. Is that how you pronounce it? No clue. I don't know. In Italy. Do not stay in Italy after the crime, though it may seem like the independent and admirable thing to do. <laughs> Don't do it. Um, yeah. Leave. Flee. Uh, you, you know, I guess she just stayed. She didn't know, but um, she shouldn't have stayed. She should have left. Mm-hmm. That was her right to She leave. was in love. She should have gone home. Yep. Number nine. Or, I think I think she was in love, but I also think she just didn't. No, she was not. She none was, of this was going to happen. She was going to be arrested. She was like, no, I'm innocent and cute, and I'm not going to get convicted because I didn't do this. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, that didn't work out. Number nine, do not ignore Aunt Dolly's first phone call in which she suggests that perhaps you should get a lawyer or seek assistance from the American embassy in Rome. Apparently, she uh, just ignored the phone call. And then number 10 is do not ignore Aunt Dolly's second phone call in which she no longer suggests but tells you to call the American embassy. Um, Yeah. Wouldn't you think if she was guilty... She would have done that. I think either way, in other words, like kind of along the lines of what we've been saying is whether she was innocent or guilty, whether you are innocent and guilty, every person acts differently. And that's why there's no, there's no black and white of this and you can't convict people on their behavior. You can't. But I, I I guess just for the sake of discussion, Mm -hmm. if she was guilty at that point and knew that that was there to support her, I think she would have started earlier in defending herself mm, where I'm I think sure. she just ignored a lot of stuff. Cause she's like, I'm fine. I'm, it's, I didn't do it. Yeah. And I, and I also think that that's always the police's standpoint is if you lawyer up right away, you must be guilty. Yeah. Even though that's not always not true. Always true. That's not always true. Cause I have to tell you, I would lawyer up immediately Yep. Um, because I know that's what but helps. That's, that's, that's also what works. experience. That's experience. And so I, I, you're absolutely right. You know, the, the, the general public is probably not going to do that, especially if we take into like what we've been talking about, mm-hmm. the naivete, the developmental stage is just like, mm-hmm. but, you know, listen to your Aunt Dolly, for Christ's sake. Um, number 11, when the police take you back to the villa and provide you with protective gloves and booties, do not, when you finish dressing, sing out, ta-da, <laughs> and turn your arms out like a star in a Broadway musical. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> and then they replied, do you not care that someone murdered your friend? I mean, you know... She just, I bless her heart. Poor thing, yeah. <laughs> bless her little heart, as my grandmother used to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> bless her sweetheart. Number twelve. Do not stay away from the memorial service for Meredith, or in other ways fail to mourn her death. That's what we've kind of alluded to. Is that one of the big problems was that they decided that she was detached and cold. Uh, she didn't attend Meredith's uh, memorial service, and everyone interpreted that as a lack of caring. So I'm just going to throw this out there. Yeah. Um, and obviously this is all just, you know, we're thinking stuff. There's no evidence, but sure. um, a psychopath would have attended. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. A psychopath would have been in the front fucking row. Oh, you bet. And and cried and mm-hmm. there's a, been several times when we've been talking actually just over this hour where I've thought, well, if she was a psychopath, she would have done this or done that. Yeah, and we would have seen shit early on mm-hmm. in her life that would have indicated. But just for this one, she would have gone. Yeah, absolutely. No, and I think it's an interesting. I mean, I think it's an interesting thing to bring up in the fact that the psychopathy of theory that she's a like the clip that we played earlier where she's sort of saying like either I'm the most psychopathic murderer you've ever met in your life mm-hmm. because I've gone through all of this and I still sit here and take interviews or whatever and seem you know I am who I am or I'm you and the psychopathy I just don't see it I don't either because the, they would have loved the attention yeah I mean if you've listen to any of our episodes at all, any of the true crime stuff and some of the movie ones too, is that there are indicators, very clear indicators. They present differently. Some of them kill, some of them don't, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's just so clear. So, Mm -hmm. okay. Number 13, do not go with Raphael to the store called bubble and purchase (laughs) bikini panties in red adorned with a caricature of a cow. Okay. Yeah just gonna leave that right there (laughs) that's the um sexy lingerie prosecution deviance yes so do you have some sexy lingerie because you you are a deviant Mm. number 14 do not close your ears to the warning implicit in aunt dolly's third phone call when she should have listened aunt dolly for (laughs) when she asks whether you have called the american embassy (laughs) 
Is anyone home? Aunt, Have you called? Aunt Dolly is a persistent lady, and I appreciate that because this whole don't listen to your elders thing did not really get her very far. Number 15, do not perform a gymnastic stunt in the police station despite an officer's inquiry about what you can do. So I guess what happened is... He will say, as long as you're here, do you mind if I ask you some questions? And then he will proceed to ask you questions and say things like, you seem really flexible. And then what else can you do? And in reply, you will perform a cartwheel and then do a split. He asked. He did. And then it was, <laughs> and then it was used against her. Mm quite publicly because a lot of people know that part about the case number 16 do not submit voluntarily to an interrogation because of your trust in the police and your belief that being innocent you have nothing to fear mm-hmm. that's a pretty standard one that when you're watching almost every episode of law and order you're like ask for a lawyer you know we all it's like don't do it mm-hmm. And then they don't. Um, number 17, when a policewoman pokes her head in the door and announces with a hint of glee that Raphael has destroyed your alibi, do not give up hope in your boyfriend's essential goodness and loyalty <laughs> or allow his betrayal to shake your belief in your own memory because that's what led to the whole thing we were talking about before where she then all of a sudden decided that you know Patrick was at fault. And Patrick was drug in and vilified in the press and he had an alibi and then she looked like an idiot. She looked like she was, she looked like a psychopath trying to blame other people. Mm -hmm. 18, do not make a false confession, quote unquote, in which you accuse an innocent man of murder and place yourself at the scene. Because that's what ended up happening when she, when she finally pointed the finger at Patrick, it placed her at the scene Mm -hmm. as if she was there. Mm -hmm. And then that lie became truth. Well, you were there, and then they went on from there. Number 19, do not try to undo the false confession by voluntarily writing an amended version of the same story. (laughs) Why didn't you listen to Aunt Dolly? Way back then. Like way back from the first phone call, because Mm -hmm. there's no way a lawyer would have allowed any of this. Um, Number 20, do not keep a diary in prison, which (laughs) I feel like that's important. She even titled it My Prison Diary. Uh, this is where there was a lot of things recounted in that prison diary and then it was found and then it was given to a journalist so that happened number 21 on we have three more of these uh number 21 on valentine's day do not go to court wearing a sleep t-shirt with pink letters six inches tall reading all you need is love (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Uh yeah Amanda. You're a weirdo. (laughs) Why will you do it? (laughs) Perhaps the t-shirt was a gift, but (laughs) like, what are you doing? Um, (laughs) Naive, naive, naive. Number 22, do not wait until the last week of your trial to start wearing conservative clothing to court. (laughs) Fair. That's fair. Fair. And number 23, when you're convicted of murder and sentenced to 26 years in an Italian prison, do not despair. That's hilarious in my opinion, because for any of you who have seen the, the video where she gets convicted, you know, she, she, her legs go weak. Uh, she can't barely walk out of the courtroom. Uh, they put her in the prison van and she's moaning. No, no, no. And, you know, they try to comfort her. She, you know, freaks out. Uh, I mean, that would have been terrifying. Hello. And then, and then, uh, and then she's just characterized all over again. As a crazy person. For, for having a normal response. Yeah, for not wanting to be sent to prison for 26 years for something that Kathy and I believe she didn't do. And if we believe it. Right. <laughs> it's right. <laughs> Isn't that how all of you feel? Mm-hmm. We're going to take a break. That's our discussion of Amanda Knox. <sighs> Foxy Knoxy. Foxy Knoxy. So we're going to take a quick break and we will do our what the hell segment. Thank you. 
Kathy and I can be reached on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you like email, it's Terror Talk Podcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. We appreciate you so much. We upload new episodes every Wednesday. Keep coming back. But first, stick around for more of our show. Oh my goodness. Amanda, I can't shake her right now, but okay. So we do a segment called what the hell at the end of most of our episodes. Are you giggling at your own? What the hell? I have two and I don't know which one. Is <laughs> well, funnier. you might just have to share them both. We need a little okay. levity. Although I did try to make the second portion of today's show sort of light without not going with the still being informative. Anyway, so real life. Why don't you do one of yours and then <laughs> I'll do, do mine. It. And then, yeah, okay. First of all, can you just look at this guy's face? He's covered in chimney. So, Ooh. okay. Okay. Alleged bandit gets stuck in chimney. Oh, right. A man in Ridgecrest, California, attempted to rob a home by sneaking in through the chimney in a move. This is actually, there's a move. It's called the reverse Santa. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Keith Schultz climbed into the chimney, but that's as far as he got as he severely misjudged its width. Oh, boy. Desperate for help, his female partner in crime allegedly tried to break into the house. I mean, this is now just turning into complete catastrophe. Yeah. To help him, which police believe triggered the home's burglar alarm. <laughs> she then called the police for help. <laughs> uh, my boyfriend and I are robbing home right now, and he got stuck in the reverse Santa. And there I'm was trying this to help move. Him out. There was this move. There was this move. It, it didn't did. quite go the way we expected. Please help. <laughs> so the firefighters pried him out of the chimney. And he was taken into police custody where he posed for a mugshot covered in soot. Yes. And they, the article says a headshot that could surely get him cast in a local stage production of Oliver Twist. Yeah, the the picture is basically him. He happens to be a black guy, but he's got black soot all over him. And it makes him look a bit spotted, I guess. I don't, yeah. I don't know. That's terrible. Okay, good times. All right, so mine is this. Okay, so the Livingston County Sheriff's Office reports that thieves have broken in and stolen a cash register from a Bilderberger restaurant. I don't think we have those Mm -hmm. here in California, so it must be somewhere else. Um, So along with the, they also stole the establishment's entire surveillance system and a large bowl of macaroni salad. <laughs> you always find the ones where they take the weirdest shit. I know, I know. Wasn't there one I'm like a, a theft, I'm apparently a theft person. Like the, the truckload of ramen? Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> they stole a truck. It won't go bad. Yeah, no. Lots I, of preservatives. <laughs> I think eventually when we create our Patreon page, which of course all of us creators eventually do because we eventually need support, I think one of the things we'll probably have to do is take all the what the hell segments and load them onto the... Oh my God. Because I would just like to listen to them all in succession. Oh my God. <laughs> um, you tell us if that's a good idea. I kind of enjoy it right now in this moment anyway. Hadn't thought of it before. So... Deputies, remember, they've stolen a cash register, um, the surveillance system, which is ingenious, and a large bowl of macaroni salad. Must have been dinner time. Deputies were hot on the criminal's trail, literally as they attempted to escape via the nearby Greenway Trail, which is probably something through the woods, I'm guessing. Um, They found along the trail cash register parts, (laughs) surveillance system parts, rubber gloves, loose change, and a steady trail of macaroni salad. Oh, that's awesome. It was later discovered that the suspect stole the macaroni salad, which looks like they were eating it along the escape route. Oh, can <laughs> you dro- imagine? Like, and dropping it. Hey, can you pass that? I'd like, I'd like some more. It's literally that fairy tale where you're like leaving drops of like whatever. Hansel and Gretel. There it is. That's the one. The, yeah, the gingerbread. Um, yeah. It was three dudes. Now, this is really interesting because one of the guys was 23. The other two are well into their 30s. And I'm just thinking this is not the brain trust. So they were charged with third degree Berkeley, third degree criminal mischief, and fourth degree grand larceny. So they could have been charged with a bad diet, I guess. Or Oh, my God. Ba-dum-bum. The trail. Yeah. So yours. yours do your other okay. one and then we're good. Sh- I got to show you this picture. Oh, okay. I wish you guys could see this guy's oh, face. Boy. Well, first, I'll read it. 
Man farts at detective oh. until he's released. Oh, Here, oh. Shannon, look at his oh. face. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. He's real proud of himself. He is. Yeah. He's like, I am he's such like, a yeah. tough guy. You know what it looks like is he just looks like he's got that, you guys, he's got that like face where you just put your chin out all the way and because you're the biggest, toughest guy in the And planet. your eyes are kind of closed. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, mess with me, man. That's what he looks okay. like. Generally, when being interrogated by police, it's best to keep your mouth shut mm. unless you have a lawyer by your side. Oh, we learned this with Foxy Noxy. It's so appropriate. But maybe... Just maybe there's another way to get out of trouble. So this guy, Sean A. Sykes, 24 years old, Kansas City. He's riding in a car in which police find drugs, two handguns. So he's, he's taken in for questioning. When the detective asks Sykes about his address, he leans to one side of his chair and releases a loud fart before answering with the address. So it's like... <laughs> Two one one five. Thanks for that. <laughs> can you, um, before I continue this, can you imagine the face of the? I mean, I'm sure they've seen a lot of stuff, but oh, right? he was probably just like, man, right? What the so, hell is your problem? So this ends up being written into the interrogation. The barrage of farts continues, oh. and according to the detective, he continues to be flatulent until I ended the interview. So just going on. <laughs> through the whole thing he wasn't charged he was he was pulled over two months later police allegedly found crack and a stolen gun in his car and it seems likely that he won't be able to fart his way out of trouble oh thank you very much for that Mm -hmm. i feel like i've read that story before actually there's a lot of (laughs) farting ones with police yeah i mean in my research for the what the hell like finding stories i feel like i've either read that or we've talked about it before because i remember the farting well, there was one where the, the the there was a guy, I think the police were looking for him, and he was down the street in the car, and he farted, and the police could smell it. Oh, yeah. There's that one. There's plenty. They are starting to blend, mm-hmm. I guess. <laughs> Thanks, you guys, so much for listening. This is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. Tune back in on Friday for our companion show, Shrink Chat. Don't hesitate to hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, or our Facebook page, all listed in the show description. Help us by subscribing on your podcast listening app of choice. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow. Thank you.